All right, well, it's good to be here for part seven of a series called On Covenants. For the last seven weeks, seven, well, eight weeks, if you want to technically look at it, we have been talking about covenants in God's plan of restoration for our lives. Basically, we've talked about God has a goal. God's, if you want to pare down the, or the, the Bible and say, okay, what, what is God's goal from the beginning in Genesis? God has a goal to be our God, that we would be his people, and that he would dwell in our midst. That was God's goal in the Garden of Eden. We see sin entered in, so God came up with a plan that he's going to institute through a plan called covenants where God says, I'm going to reach down to people and I'm going to bring you into relationship with me so I can be your God and you can be my people. Well, we know early in Genesis that sin keeps entering in and we even see in in the story of Noah how sin keeps coming back into the situation to kind of try to derail God's plans. So from the very beginning we see even, even the first covenant with Noah, God says, I'm going to accommodate humans. I'm going to accommodate your situation. I'm going to accommodate your sins. I'm going to accommodate your weaknesses. And I'm going to do for you what you cannot do on your own. See, that's the heart of covenants. It's the heart of God that says, there are things that you cannot do on your own. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to do things for you despite your inability. So on one hand, covenants is a sign of relief that we can say, okay, we don't have to be perfect to have a relationship with Christ, that we don't have to work out all these things in our life and to be perfect, but God says, I'll come to you in the midst of your weaknesses. But see, that's frustrating on the other hand, because on the other hand, we all kind of want to be perfect. We want things to be completely restored in our life, and we don't want to have to deal with any sickness or, or, or struggles or, or vulnerabilities. So we live in that tense area between waiting for perfection when we come into heaven. And sometimes that can be a frustrating place that we have weaknesses and that things aren't really how we know that God really wants to restore them. But the fortunate thing about God, what he does is he takes our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, our sickness, anything we're dealing with, and he mitigates the damage of those things. See, mitigate's an interesting word. Mitigate's kind of a fun word. It means to make less severe or to make less painful. Sometimes God will allow things in our life to remain around, to draw us back to him. But at the same time, God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to mitigate what these things would do in your life to to be hurtful or to bring pain. See, if you lived in Florida, you, the word mitigate is kind of a popular word that you would use. We lived in central Florida for about eight, nine years. And, um, and what you would do in Florida is that when you got homeowner's insurance, it was crazy expensive. Because in reality, Florida is a sandbar in the middle of the ocean. And you have hurricanes, and you have tropical storms, and you have a bunch of houses. So when you go to get your homeowner's insurance, it's very expensive. So what they do is they quote you a price, what your homeowner's insurance is going to be, and then what they do is they send over a wind mitigation expert to come over and investigate your house and investigate your property to tell you how would your house survive during a storm. And the whole goal is when the the wind mitigation expert comes over that he'll say, okay, based on the quality of your house, the structure of your house, your house could be able to withstand a storm. And so like our house in Florida, we had a con- it was built on a concrete slab. You have concrete walls. You have extra thick windows. Your garage door weighs about two tons, and you have reinforcements to protect it. And so the wind mitigation expert would come over and say, okay, based on all these things that are in place, if a storm comes for your house, you're probably going to be pretty safe if you have a quality house. 
and you have all these things done. And so fortunately, I remember when they did our study on our house, they would set up these little things in the backyard and watch how the wind would blow from one direction to the other and how the wind would go between the houses. So your, your house situation was extremely important. I remember the expert said to us, he said, based on the position of your house, you guys are going to be pretty safe during a tropical storm or during a hurricane. And I think that's an interesting word based on your position, how you're going to survive a storm. Because it's basically our relationship with Christ is going to determine how we survive storms of life. How are we going to get through things? Because in Florida, there's no such thing as saying, we'll never have a storm. You're going to have a storm. So what are you going to build in place in your house so that you do not become vulnerable to storms in your life? You have to have a good foundation. You have to have solid walls. And actually, you have to know where your community is. Because where your house is in your community is going to determine how strong your house is and what kind of storm you can survive. And I think that's the beautiful thing about our Wednesday nights, saying let's have a family night. It's let's, let's get positioned with other people in our life. Let's get positioned in other people in our life so when storms do come, we have neighbors that we can rely on, we can trust on, that we can know. And what a good time to build a relationship when maybe there's not a big storm. Instead of waiting for a storm and then wondering, who's my neighbor? I need some help. So that's the beauty, beautiful thing about coming for our Wednesday night is so we can come together and know each other, know how to support each other. I love the verse in John 4, verse 24, and I added this this morning so it's not in your outline. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's John 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. See, this verse talks about the kind of attitude that we have to have. What kind of heart attitude that we have to have? It's talking about what is your position with God. Where are you with your position with God? Because when God says that you must worship him in truth, this isn't just based on what truth the Bible says. Yes, that is extremely important. But truth is also referring to what kind of transparency are you going to have with God? What kind of vulnerability are you going to have with God? Are you going to have come to God and are you going to be open and honest and transparent with God about how you are or how your life is going or about how the situation is going in your life? See, that sometimes is hard. We like the truth of God, but sometimes when we have to be honest with God, that can be a little bit more of a challenge than some of us want to take. I talked to you last week how the Lord's been encouraging me over the summer to be more honest to be more transparent with, with the Lord on my relationship with him. And that's always hard because none of us like to admit our weaknesses. None of us like to admit our struggles or our complications. We kind of like to pretend that everything's going great. We kind of like to present to each other, I'm doing great, I'm doing fine, there's nothing going on in my life that's up, difficult or hard. And when we have that attitude with other people, eventually it's going to influence our relationship with God because we don't want to be honest with God. But see, this is the truth that God, um, all through the Bible, he's always inviting us to come to him to exchange our situation for his grace. He always invites us to come to him so he can mitigate challenges in our life to carry our load. 
And see, that shouldn't really be a surprise because the basic idea of the Bible is we come to Christ and we surrender our life to him. In exchange, he gives us eternal life and he gives us a relationship with Christ. But that can be really hard to do because sometimes we want to act like things are going better than they really are. But see, this is the situation that God calls each of us to extremely high standards of living. He calls us to do things that we are not able to do on our own. He calls us to deny our flesh. He calls us to be his ambassadors. He calls us to, rec- to, to represent Christ. Those are some high expectations that God has for our lives. But see, this is a beautiful thing about Christ. He doesn't just come to us and say, okay, this is how I expect you to live, and then walk away. Instead, he walks up to you and he says, okay, this is how you are supposed to live. Now follow me, and I'll make it a reality. That's a whole lot different with Christ saying, okay, follow me, and I'll make it a reality. He doesn't just walk away. But I'll tell you, it's hard because some of us have challenges in our life we don't like to talk about. And so I'm going to do that. So I'm going to tell you that I have dyslexia. And not yet. And it's a kind of a tricky thing because I've had dyslexia probably forever. But it's one of those things you often don't like to talk about. See, I had dyslexia back in the days where you didn't diagnose dyslexia when you were little. Instead, you were kind of told you were stupid. I mean, they didn't say you were stupid, but they didn't have a nice way to say it. And so here's this thing, if you can read this. This is, uh, this is a, an engineer who tried to write this app of what does it look like for people who have dyslexia? What is reading like? Now, I understand dyslexia is a big spectrum. And so that's what reading... It's a little tricky to do live because you have lights and colors and pixels, but a lot of people with dyslexia, what your problem is, that's what, that's what it looks like reading, is you have words just kind of changing letters in the middle of it. It can be very hard to read and to concentrate. See, for me, I don't think I see it that bad, but for me, what I do is I, when I look at a word, I don't often see the letters in the right order. I just kind of scramble around. But see, for me, spelling isn't a five-letter word. You spell it right. If you get the five letters right, that counts. That's spelling. You just throw the five letters in, and that's how you spell. So I didn't do very good in spelling. Some people are like, how did you graduate from college? And I'll tell you, barely. Barely is how I graduated from college. But the funny thing is, I never read a book. When I graduated from college, I had never read a book. Now, I could read some. I could read some paragraphs. And you're like, how did you graduate from college? Did you just cheat? No, I was, that's <laughs> really stupid. I got an accounting degree, which accounting members, that's not a whole other thing. But I learned how to compensate. I could take accounting and I could just memorize different formulas. Didn't help when those numbers jumped around. Didn't do for good for grades. But you know the interesting thing? The first time I read a book was after I really surrendered my life to Christ. For some reason... And that's kind of my point to this. For some reason, after I met Ron and Susie and the Snyders, they all read like crazy. So it's only natural you meet them, you're going to learn how to read. But it was actually the first time in my life I actually read a book from cover to cover. 
And so it's part of the story. You're like, why are you talking about this? Why are you telling us about your dyslexia? Well, for one, I don't really like to. And what Becky said to me earlier this week, she said, I was studying and I had all my books and everything around. She looked at me and she said, it's kind of amazing you can do what you do with dyslexia. That I can read, I can write a message, and I can hopefully a coherent message that you can understand. Once in a while, I do take a mulligan. That was last week. But she said, it's amazing what you can do. And I thought, you know, that is really true. That's how covenants work. God looks at us and says, okay, this is your situation. This is all the things you can't do. But this is what I'm calling you to do. So the way you're going to get from your situation to my plans for you is called covenant. I'm going to step in and I'm going to do for you what you cannot do on your own. And that's what God says to every single person. I am calling you to do something that's beyond your ability, beyond your capability. And you're looking there saying, how in the world am I going to be able to do it? And that's where we say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. Because covenant's going to carry me from my current situation, and it's going to bring me into your plans for your, my life. But see, for me on dyslexia, it was interesting. Becky said, she said, I can tell you when you were started to able to do better at reading and writing your sermon preparations. She said, it was about two years ago, we went to Barnes and Nobles, and she said, you actually picked up a book on dyslexia, and you're willing to read it. See, up until that point, a couple of years ago, I did not like to talk about it. I did not like to even reference it. I kind of, I was diagnosed actually when I was in seminary with it. I never liked to talk about it. And then I was in a, uh, that's too complicated. I never wanted to talk about it. I was just like, there's some part of me just said, well, I, that has to go away in order for me to be okay. That, G, that my only testimony would be if that went away, that God healed that. But so that's why I bring it up today because part of a testimony of restoration is look what God can do to, to despite my inability to do something. And I think that's why we're coming together today for communion. What communion is all about, it's all about remembering what Christ has done in our life and what Christ can do for our life. Communion's all about remembering the great exchange that happens when we come to Christ and we give him our struggles, our challenges, our sins our obstacles in life, that when we come here and we give it to Christ in exchange, he gives us his body, he gives us his wholeness, and he gives us his forgiveness. And we can, what we can do is we can exchange lies, the lies that we believe for the truth. See, I think a lot of us struggle with things in our own life. Maybe it's not like dyslexia, but it's that feeling of I'm less than or I'm inadequate because of the struggle that's going on in my life. And sometimes what it would happen for me is I didn't want anybody to know I had dyslexia because in some ways it feel like, okay, I'm inadequate. And so even though dyslexia was never a, a sin to have that, it would cause me to sin because I would feel less than or I would feel insecure. And what happens is that just produces fear in your life. And fear is nothing more than fuel for shame. And the cycle would just continue. As long as you have fear of other people finding out, it will keep you in shame of thinking, hey, I'm just not good enough. 
But I actually have learned in my life that actually dyslexia is something that probably does work for my benefit. Yeah, it's kind of tricky reading, but there's other things about dyslexia that actually are good for me. But I think dyslexia is kind of one of those things in your life and even challenges in your life, vulnerabilities in your life, propensities to sin, that you can use those as almost like commodities. That God says you can use those and come to me and exchange them for something better. That you don't have to hold on to those the rest of your life. I love this verse in Isaiah 55, verse 1. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy, eat wine and milk without money and without price. And that's the invitation to this table, that you come. You don't have to have any money for forgiveness or redemption or restoration. You don't have any money to come, you don't need money to come here. So what do you use if you don't have money? How do you come to Christ? Last week I talked about Psalm 145, verse 16, but I want to read some verses before and after that where it says, The Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all that he does. The Lord helps the fallen, and he lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hands, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all who love, all those who love him. But he destroys the wicked. See, I love the verse that the Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. That's how the Lord says to come to him. That's what we exchange. We come to him in the truth. As I read earlier from the book of John 4, you come to him with honesty. You come to him with vulnerability. You come to him and say, this is what is going on in my life. And I need to exchange it for redemption and for wholeness and what you do. All through, the, all through the auditorium, you saw I put a little white, white little uh, pieces of paper on the chairs. If there's one on your chair, maybe there's one around them. What I'm going to ask you to do is today, and you don't have to do this. This is just a suggestion, is that when we take communion today, come up and bring this. This, this is not like you have, this is not a biblical thing you have to do. This is for me. This is kind of a, a picture of what you do. See, when we come to Christ, what we bring him is the worst things in our life. That's what Andrew Miller, our missionary in Nepal, says. You know, sometimes we think we come to Christ and we bring him our best. Our goal is to serve Christ our best. But when we come to Christ, we bring him our worst things. We say, God, this is my sin. This is my insecurity. This is my doubt. This is my shame. And I'm going to bring them to you. In exchange, you're going to give me forgiveness and wholeness and restoration. And I'm not going to ask. You don't have to write anything on here. This is kind of hard to do in here. But I'm just going to ask you to, to, to take this paper. And maybe in your head you'll write something on here. What you want to give to Christ is kind of a, maybe, you know, there's some area of your life that you struggle with. Or maybe an insecurity you have or a doubt that you have or fear that you have. And I'm not going to ask that you have to write it down here. That, but maybe just think about it. Maybe you need to put something on here. And when you come for communion today, just, just leave this here at the table when you're served, just kind of a reminder of you're going to leave that burden with Christ. And he's going to give you his body that was broken for you. See, his body was broken 
so our body could be restored. And then he gives us the wine, which is a reminder that his, he, he died. His blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven. And all that we need to do is say, I'm going to give you my problems. I'm going to give you my life. Because it's a reminder to us, a part of being a Christian is following, is following Christ. And it's easy to forget in the busyness of life, so I want to remind us to do that. Why? Because life can be so hard and it's so complicated on so many levels. And as I said earlier, God calls us to high standards of living. And we can't do that without the covenant blessing in our life. We'll never be able to accomplish what God has called us to do as individuals and for people that are part of families or part of communities or even married. We cannot do that without the covenant blessing of God working in our life. In Galatians 5 is an interesting chapter of the Bible. Paul is talking to the church, and in the church, people, they've met Christ. They understand the benefits of Christ, but they want to go back to legalism. They want to go back to rules. And Paul is saying, you don't have to live that way. You can live with the freedom that Christ has for you. And sometimes we fall, and we, we just want rules. And Paul is saying, you have this relationship with Christ. This is what it's about. It's like Lori was talking and Susie and Ron about we have this relationship with Christ where we can pray and dialogue with God. He hears our prayers and he's going to lead us through his word. And so Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, them, firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul's saying to the church, don't give up the freedom that God has given to you. Don't go back to this yoke of slavery. Last week we talked about, in the book of Matthew, it talks about God saying to be yoked with Christ in righteousness, that follow Christ in his leading. See, Paul's reminding us again, but be, don't get yoked to sin, but remember, yoke yourself to the Spirit of God that wants to lead you. And then later on in verse 15, or in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, it says, for you are called to freedom. That's what God has called us to. He's called each of us to live in freedom. So only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, this is where Paul's taking us. Paul's saying, okay, covenant is about this vertical relationship that we have with God, that through Jesus Christ we can be in relationship with God. And now Paul's saying, okay, this covenant relationship that you have with God now needs to extend out to your family and to your friends and your coworkers and to your spouse and your children. Don't forget that what you have between Christ is now supposed to keep extending out. And so then in verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, there's Paul's going back and saying, hey, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake going on here, and it is so easy to fall back and say, I want to satisfy myself with my flesh. And when God's saying, I want to satisfy your desires, and it's that tug of war sometime, who's going to satisfy our desires? Are we going to let God satisfy our desires, or are we going to try to look for the world to satisfy our desires? And then Paul says in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit, Paul's saying. 
See what that literally means? It says, walk along the path that God has for you. Walk along the path that God has for you and let him lead you. But that's hard too. It's, 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 I like the idea sometimes of saying, okay, I'll drop my stuff here. And I just want it gone. I just leave it there and then I get to go back. But no, God's saying, you drop it here. And then that Holy Spirit that's inside of you is going to lead you to complete freedom. And so that's why Paul is saying here, he says, you got to keep in step with the Spirit. I like that language. You got to keep in step. You got to walk where he's leading you. But that can be a hard thing sometimes to actually follow when there's a challenge in your life or an obstacle in your life. And maybe God's going to take you through a path of healing and restoration that's going to make you a little uncomfortable. But it's so important that we do it because God always wants this relationship with, that he has with us to continue to grow. So how does this become reality? How do, how do we take this relationship that we have with God and extend it to other people? See, I think a very practical way to understand covenant with God and covenant with other people is through marriage. That God actually calls marriage a covenant. In the book of Malachi, it talks about marriage as a covenant. And, we, and sometimes we don't see the word repeated over and over again about covenant, but we see marriage has all the signs and the marks of a covenant. But see, sometimes I think we look more like marriage, like it's more of a contract. Or sometimes we even look at relationships with friends more of a contract when God is even sometimes our friendships are more covenants. See, contract is kind of a selfish way to do marriage. It's kind of a selfish way to do life because what we say is, I will do this as long as you meet my needs. And the minute you're not meeting my needs, well, then maybe I'm going to try to find a way out of this. But God's called marriage to be a covenant. See, contract is always based on if this person will meet my needs, then I will stay in this relationship. But the minute they don't meet my needs, I'm out. And that's why God even calls the family body of Christ to be in covenant relationships with each other because our relationships with other people is not about what can you do for me. It's what can I do for you. And that's hard because our unnatural tendency is, well, what can you do for me? I get a little selfish. If you're not going to meet my needs, who's going to meet my needs? If I'm just supposed to, like, serve you, who's going to take care of me? But see, that's the point, is God always wants to be the one to meet our needs. See, Becky wasn't created to meet all of my needs as my wife. Ron's not created to meet all of my needs as my friend. Yes, they can love me, encourage me, strengthen me, Point me to Christ, give me good counsel, but in the end, it is God who meets our needs. It is Jesus who satisfies our desires. I can't put that on Becky. I can't put it on you to meet my friends. It always comes from God. See, last week I talked to you about a mulligan that I said to me last week I, in my sermon, I had to take a mulligan because my one a week earlier wasn't that good. So I had to come and be honest and say, I got to do a do-over. And I love the term mulligan. Mulligan's a golfing term, which means you get a do-over shot because you kind of sliced it the first time. <laughs> Say, I like mulligans. 
And I think sometimes it's the safest thing we can do and the healthiest thing that we can do in our life is say, you know what, I need to take a mulligan. I kind of, I'm really, I'm not doing that good. And actually, Becky and I did that uh, earlier this summer. When we were talking about covenant of marriage, and I was kind of preparing to do the series, we're reading a lot more on covenant, and we looked at each other and said, it's easy to forget marriage is a covenant and look at it like a contract. And so we even had to say, you know, hey, we got to remember marriage is covenant. Marriage is how can I serve you? Marriage is about going to Christ and saying, this is my deficiency. And you've called me to this relationship, and I'm incapable of it. But just like you can give me the strength in my dyslexia, you can give me the strength in anything so I can do what you're calling me to do. And so we've had kind of a fun summer just talking about how is marriage a covenant and just reminding ourselves. Because it's easy to get the mentality of marriage is just contract. Friendships are just contract. And if you're not making me happy, well, then I don't want to do this anymore. See, there's five great attributes of, of, a, of, a, of a covenant characteristics of relationships. This is from a Lifeway Magazine article. And these are covenant relationships that just nece- doesn't necessarily just have to be for marriage. But it's in all you know, Christian community relationships that God would call us to. And number one, covenants are initiated for the benefit of the other person. And you might say, well, why do I have to do that? Well, of course, Paul would have something to say about that. In Ephesians 5, verse 20, 21, he's not even talking about marriage here. He's talking about relationships with other believers. He's saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, Paul creates a high standard that we are supposed to have in our relationships with other people, but also that would also be in your marriage relationship. That's submitting to the other person, putting the other person's needs actually before yours. And number two is, in covenant relationships, people make unconditional promises. I mean, this is specifically in marriage. And, you know, back when we were talking, I was like, I don't even remember the vows I spoke to you in my marriage. And here, you know, that's probably the most important day of my life 23 years ago. And I didn't even remember literally what I actually promised. I probably remember a little bit. But here sometimes we forget what we said we were going to do. And so it's important for us to say, we got to kind of dig out that old wedding tape and remind ourselves, what did we say we were going to do here? Because that's why God calls us a covenant. Then the, the third thing is that covenant relationships are based on steadfast love. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourself together in peace. See, that's how Christ calls us to live in community, not just marriage. Then the fourth thing is covenant relationships view commitment as permanent. That's a hard thing because sometimes we're like, uh, I just want to get out. I don't want to be friends with you anymore. I don't want to be married. This is just hard, and it's easier to say, I'm just going to get out. And so the fifth thing is hard with covenant relationships require confrontation and forgiveness. That's harder than, that's hard. See, I'm, I'm in marriage, I, I, I'm 
I'll be confrontational, but I'm not the forgiving guy. Becky's all forgiveness and no confrontation. And that can be tricky to work itself out. Because then you got just hostile people mad at each other, but it looks really good. <laughs> but that's what we've even learned this summer. Okay, how do you have a marriage that requires confrontation that Becky doesn't like to do, but I like to do, but I don't like to forgive. And she it's the working those things out. But that's not just marriage, that's friendships. If we're going to grow in relationship with other people, we have to be able to be confrontational and forgiving and love. But it's hard to admit you're not good at something. It's really hard to be vulnerable and say, yeah, I really am not forgiving all the time. I say I am, but I'm not. See, one of my favorite things to do, our family's favorite things to do, is go to Sam's sporting events. Some of you met Sam here. Yeah, yeah Sam's fun. Sporting events. Sam plays baseball. Sam plays basketball. And he's really good at it. Sam, <laughs> he's a lot of fun at it. Sam plays uh, basketball at his high school, Holland Christian. He has a special team, which is called the Unified Basketball Team. And so what Sam does is he's paired with a friend that he plays basketball with, and they play different schools in West Michigan. Now, the requirement for Sam's team is that you have to admit that you need some help on the field or on the court. And so then you get to play with a friend. And I think Sam's team... Sam's team is always a reminder to me of how Christian life is supposed to look. I think a lot of times, a lot of us sit in the bleachers and we watch. But we don't participate in life because we don't think we're qualified. Or we think we're not adequate enough to play on the court. So we sit and watch. And life goes by and we're sitting in the stands. Everybody else gets to play and we think, I'm not good enough. See, the enemy lies to us over and over again, says, you're disqualified. You're no good. You can't play. You've sinned. You've sinned again. You've sinned again. You've repented, but you've done it again, and we think we're disqualified. See, the whole time Christ is saying, no, this forgiveness is right here again. Try again. So in Sam's team, the beautiful thing is Sam has a friend that he plays basketball with. In the Psalms, it will talk about how God is our friend. But another term, it will talk about how the Holy Spirit is our friend. That somebody is with us so we can play and get in the game. So let me show you a little clip on how Sam plays basketball without a friend. There's Sam. <laughs> yeah. That's Sam's defense. But now, in his defense, that kid charged him a few times. And so Sam's net, he tried to take Sam's ball. 
And sometimes that's our natural reaction. Sometimes something comes at us, our natural reaction is just push them away. So let me show you Sam's friend. That's Will. <clears throat> so Will is Sam's friend from school. And Sam and Will are in classes together. They practice together. They go to lunch together. They hang out a lot together. So Will knows Sam really, really well. So when Sam plays basketball, Will is right next to him. Sam is also your uh, U.S. congressman's son. So uh, vote Will is. Yeah, Will is. So if you live in Ottawa County, you vote for the... Well, I don't know if I can say that in church. Anyway... So Will's a good guy. He is uh, with Sam, except for the moment he forgot to be next to Sam when we had the little incident, but it's a good thing. And here's Sam's other friends. And that's just cool. So, so that's just a picture, I think, of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. Wants to say... You, I have all these people behind you. This is what family night's about. People coming behind you and say, yeah, cheering, happy, encouraging. That's why I think we're such a high value on gathering together like this, but also on Wednesday nights when we can be together and sit across from a table to encourage each other. So I'm going to invite all of you to uh, come to the table. We're going to come to the table today, and the table has always been a metaphor all through scriptures as a place of vulnerability. It's a place of reconciliation. Jesus would gather at the table with people that are marginalized and broken and left out of society, and he would always say, come to the table because I want to reconcile with you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this beautiful verse, and he says, For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're invited today to come and eat the bread that is a reminder that Christ was broken so that we could become whole. And then Paul goes on to say, in the same way also, Christ took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, we, portray, we proclaim the Lord's death, but also his victory when we come to this table. See, participating in this is a reminder of the victory that each of us have through Christ. It's a reminder that we can overcome. It's a reminder that we can be forgiven again and again and again. It's a reminder that labels do not determine our identity. It's a reminder that Christ's death and resurrection determine our identity. But then Paul goes on in a few verses after this, and he says... Now take this really serious. Don't just come up here just like I'm getting snacks to sit down because this is what we do. But take this serious. 
Remember what Christ did for each of you. The significance of what Christ has done for us so that we can have eternal life, but also so that we could be forgiven. So that also we could participate in life. That we could have the backing of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do things that we could never do on our own. Paul is saying, take this serious. Because what Christ is going to do for you is beyond any of you could ask or imagine or hope for. Don't just come up here and act like it's just another routine that we do in church. But remember, it is significant. It is significant, and your life could change again by coming up here and participating in this. Because, see, our life was changed when we came to Christ the first time. And every time we come up here, we're just declaring again what Christ has done in our life. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come to this table. Or if you want to make a commitment today, and maybe the first time in your life, say, you know, I want to start living my life today for Christ. That maybe up until this point, you really haven't lived much for Christ. But you say, today I want to start following Christ, and I want to start being obedient to what He is calling me to do. And I want to trust that there is the Holy Spirit that will come into my life. And that will help me. That will be the one to help me navigate through this life. Because I really don't know what to do. But see, when you become a follower of Jesus and you say, I want to follow Christ, he will put his Holy Spirit inside you to lead you in all truths. And then we just follow, we keep in step, as Paul says. So today I'm going to ask uh, Lynn and Ron, they're going to come up and serve communion. And one will serve the bread and one will serve the wine. I'm going to ask you, if you want to do this, you don't have to. But you just come up and just, just put this piece of paper here. Just kind of a reminder of, yeah, you're giving your life to Christ again. That you're recommitting to following him. And then when you're done, I'm going to, Becky's going to hand out to you as you go through the line. After you, you put your cup in there, Becky will be here and just to hand you this verse. Just a reminder, I love this verse from Psalm 145, 16 that says, you open your hands. This is a picture of a God. God opens his hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. That's what God wants to do for each of us. Satisfy each of our desires and longings. And this is just another reminder that God is the one who satisfies our desires. And sometimes we just need to give him some desires that we have that are desires of the flesh and say, God, you just give me the desires that you have for me.